All right, Reed, let's start at the beginning. I don't need you to go all the way back to birth, but somewhere along the line, you fall into franchising. And obviously you're you're more of the founder figure in this story, but how do you even fall into franchising? And what makes me curious about this question is I, I can think back to the, the minute before I fell into this. And if you would have said, all right, tell me what franchising is. I mean, I thought it was McDonald's, but I had no clue. So I'm I'm curious how you fall into this as a as an opening to our discussion. Yeah. So in the uh, like right at the turn of the 2000s, early 2000s, I uh, was working for an organization, and uh, they were more of a distributor model, and so is product distribution model. And so, um, you know, when I stepped into that, one of the things that really intrigued me was that I am a person that loves working with other leaders. You know, basically, and and so. I had an opportunity to contact other franchise. This is kind of a secondary offering. It happened to be Christmas lights, actually. And so I would contact seasonal businesses that were looking for Christmas lighting, and they had already served other customers. So there's all sorts of franchisors in the home services space, and that's who I contacted, of, of which many of the brands are actually part of the, the neighborly network now. And, um, and so they were looking for, they had the customer base, the residential customer base and everything else. And so I learned a ton about franchising at the time and, and it was all across the board. And that really intrigued me to see, oh, wow, these are, you know, business owners, because my dad for a long time had uh, been as a business owner, he sold homes and built homes and did it all on his own. I mean, and I could see the deficiencies of that. And then I saw, wow, they're, these guys probably didn't have as much experience as my dad. Um, but actually we're succeeding in, uh, uh, in, in performance. And I looked at that and saw that as the franchise model that they had, uh, were able to lean into their strengths as employees and, and then also leverage the franchisor for areas that they probably needed help and assistance in. And so, uh, that really intrigued me at the time and, uh, propelled me into ultimately franchising. It's awesome. So. Take me through the the pathway as a franchisor, and I want I want to know more like what what are the aches and pains? Because before we got got on video, you said we've grown exponentially, which I love hearing that. But it's not like this is this isn't an overnight success story. So talk about the the bumps and bruises and and the wins of the the war of franchising as a franchisor. Yeah, so I think you know I go all the way back to the beginning as the founder. I started this 16 years ago, actually, and. You know, I think a lot of the aches and pains can be mitigated by really starting at the beginning the right way. I think a lot of franchisors downstream are trying, if I would have known this at the beginning, if I would have known this at the beginning, I would have done this, this, and this, and this differently. And so, you know, for me, the first and most important thing is, can a customer, a end user, the end result customer, get a benefit from using us as a franchisor or a franchise network? Most people say, I like this industry, you know, this industry is ripe for change and you know, the, the, I love franchising in general, and I'd like to go down that path. And then ultimately to go deliver that to the customer, and the customer's like, well, you're the same price, same service. Why would I use you, right? And then they're like, uh-oh, now what do we do? You know, we can't break away from that, and our model's broken, and nobody makes money, and then ultimately it doesn't really thrive to the same degree. And so with that orientation, that led to exponential growth. I said, okay, what's the problem a customer ultimately has, right? And so I saw that, you know, the security industry kind of fit some basic tenets of the franchising industry. One. Any franchisor, you know, uh, worth its salt is in a recurring monthly revenue business. That's why you see a lot in, in restaurants. Everybody eats three times a day at least, right? Sometimes more. Uh, or hotels, which are also franchises. They, they have to stay somewhere at a night if they're traveling. And so that works. And so there's a recurring monthly component to that. The more frequently it recurs and the more often it is, the bigger the business, right? I mean, we eat the food industry is used because we eat frequently. 
And so I saw that insecurity that, that there are, there's nowhere in the hierarchy of needs that we don't want to ultimately be safe or ultimately have something taken from us in a security space. Right. And so that's number one. Number two is saying, are, is there a differentiated model that I can provide? Right. I mean, we don't need another me too concept, right. In franchising, there's countless concepts and, and you can pick the industry, whether it's food concepts, quick service, fast food, even the genre of food to exercise, to you name it. And it's just another me too with marginal differences. And then it becomes an economics and the differences, right? Because the services give or take on the other side. And so I looked at the industry and I said, there's no franchisor. There's no franchisor in the security space. It's pure, it's purely uh, big multinational organizations or two super small independent businesses. And so then I was like, well, that intrigues me. You know, that intrigues me because it isn't just us being another me too franchisor. And so then I said, okay, now if I were to do this better, what would it take to do it better? And this is the final pillar. I said, okay, one, do, you know, how can we do this better? One is having a local owner, right? A local owner with experience in security and largely our platform launched with people that had an interest in being a security business owner. That's how most franchises are launched, people that want to be in it. And over time, it's now become a business model that other people want to make money using, right? And that's where we've evolved as a franchise owner. But the second pillar behind that is technology. When I looked around in the security industry, it's largely done in a pen and paper, um, you know, call someone and tell them they have to work today uh, methodology. And so just like the franchise in industry blew apart the whole food industry because of point of sale software, we essentially leverage the same level of software in a disparate, uh, disparate uh, group of individuals working on a site location. And so those were the things that made it a, a game changer for us is when we could say local owner leveraging technology on a recurring monthly revenue industry in an industry that won't be threatened by any economic storm or otherwise. And so that was the beginning of the process. And then of course, from there, you, what becomes the aches and pains? Well, uh, the number one holdback I think is economics. The, every franchisee will tell you, I could make money if I was at year five or seven, but how do I get there with the limited amount of capital available and ultimately the process. And so, um, as a franchise or a big part of this model is we do in-house financing, comprehensive in-house financing. So that is the franchise fee. That is your payroll. We finance your payroll and then we finance against your receivables for operating capital, among other things. And so I knew immediately day one, and now most franchisors can't do that one. They may not have had the capital or the ability to do it. And number two is, uh, they don't want the risk associated with it, but B2B it's relatively easy to do, right? The capital can come through in a, a form of a, a client check that then otherwise would be financing the franchisees business going forward. And so that was the beginning model. And then from there we sold franchise. And so that eliminated the concern of finding a great candidate that has no money, right? Because I'm otherwise looking for the great candidate only, and you can build a much better pro process and platform because I've had people with a lot of money and they weren't a great franchisee. Likewise, I've had people that are great franchisees that uh, are one of our longest standing franchisees early and huge success had a uh, sub 450 credit score. Right. And and uh, had made some mistakes in life and it kind of caught up with them. But but I gave him a chance and he burgeoned over a decade plus on success. And so that's an example on either side versus the person that had a ton of money. And so that was the initial setup of the model. And, and that would have been an ache and pain for everybody. Now, that doesn't mean that that leads to the ache and pain final, which means because it's relatively easy with that because of the systems and services and economics, you can get people that never look at their economics <laughs> because it's, it's protected for them versus the penny pinching economic mass, uh, people that manage that going forward. And so you can get a little bit of balance both. And those, 
can be painful for the franchisee and certainly painful for the franchisor uh, when you're holding them accountable that a bank may have otherwise done as an external party, you're doing that internally, which can create some relative level of friction. So that'd be my answer, Nick. All right, I have a, a few comments. Well, let me let me start with two easy ones because because I there's a lot to unpack there. One is if you stripped away security from what you just said, you have a fundamental viewpoint on franchising that is different from other people. So the twofold question is one, why have you not created the neighborly and done this over and over and over again and franchised your model? And two, when private equity is waving fancy checks at you during COVID, what prevented you from saying not yet? So uh, let's start with the first one there. Number one is uh, certainly a, I'm a big believer that uh, Chick-fil-A is successful because they only sell chicken. Not because there's not a burger um, joint out there. I mean, you look at franchising, the ones in and out Burger, right? I mean, they're successful because they only sell burgers and only three or four ways. So you can distract yourself with many, 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 many different levels of services and be, uh, and be average at all of them. I've decided to be exceptional at one and the industry is so enormous. So the only time you pivot into other categories, right? Coca-Cola didn't have Diet Coke until 50 years later when the market was saturated with Coke. You know, so I'm going to go saturate the globe, quite frankly, we'll be the world's largest security company, period. And that's just a matter of time. And so if I lose sight of that, we won't achieve it uh, by diversification and otherwise. Um, and so, however, I would agree with you, there are some underlying principles that will make our platform and, and business model viable in other franchisors. And I think those are things will come in time. It's, it's complicated. And I think, you know, we're in our hockey stick growth uh, level and it needs my uh, pure and, and un, undistracted focus. And uh, I think if you watch over the next five to seven years, um, what you've seen, and I know we've known each other for a little time here, but uh, if you watch the next 10 years, it'll be exponentially bigger than you would have seen the last 10 years uh, in that case. And so that requires me to kind of ma manage that as the founder and CEO. Um, I think the second question is I actually had private equity at one point. So I had initial partners early on, one of which was a big franchisor in, in a very memorable name, franchisor. And, uh, and I, I had that, for, that partner for nine years and another one that was a franchisee, a large franchisee of a national chain uh, here in Omaha. And uh, they were both partners of mine. And then uh, they were one of which was exited by private equity. The other stayed in. And then in uh, June of 2020, I exited private equity. So I actually uh, uh, bought them out. Um, and I did that for a couple of reasons to, to answer the end question here is one, um, and this is really just a, a general investor question. When would you want to sell an asset that appreciates at 20 or 30% every year? We're growing. If you look at all of our economic metrics, we're up 20 plus percent, 40% through COVID actually. And we've maintained since that generates a very healthy profit. And number two is if you sold it, where would you put that money? And then number three is, if you haven't picked up on this yet, I am not one to sit idle. Um, I won't twiddle my thumbs, go to the golf course and any of those other things. I'm going to be investing my time and energy. And so where else can I invest my time and energy with a greater return than 100% owner of a company I founded 16 years ago? And then most importantly, and finally, is I'm not doing this for the money. Right. And I know that's difficult to see a lot of audience to understand. I'm doing it because we truly create peace of mind. And I know that in my absence, if private equity were to come in or another investor, that would dynamically change. And you can look at any industry and any organization 
that when they had other investors, and I wouldn't even say private equity, when the voice changed from the founding voice, the message narrative and processes change. And there's countless examples in public space where you see organizations that have hired a outside marketing firm, for example, that might have directed them in the wrong direction and they have to recover customers and all that other stuff. So part of our success will be our stability. And that stability starts at the top and with ownership. So that would be my answer to that question. Well, and, and you know, I hear this in, in, the, in, your first, in your first answer, before I even ask that question, I mean, you're, you're talking about a dream that still exists. And I think, you know, when, when a founder's dream or they start to feel burnt out or the, they can't dream as big anymore, then it removes. But, you know, the, the money side resonates with me. I mean, at some point in, in any good business, you, you've made enough money where you can, like you've hit the top of your lifestyle. I'm sure that you, you can magically go buy a plane or you could buy 20 more houses if, if, if you wanted to go do that. But that's, that's not what you play for. It's almost you're, you're, playing, you're playing a game of winning more than money. And so when that shifts into the mindset, then it's about winning and losing. It's not, it's not, it's not about the financial return. And I would imagine you stepping in here, seeing the opportunities, still dreaming big, wanting to still make a difference, caring passionately about the customer, like all that combination of stuff means that you don't care about the check. You care more about the, the mission, right? Yeah, and I think I'm going to kind of uh, edit your statement there. I care about purpose. I, I was, I believe everyone's created on purpose for a purpose, and this is clearly mine. And so whether it's winning or not, I mean, nobody loses on purpose. <laughs> I mean, nobody says I'm going to wake up and lose on purpose, right? I mean, that's throwing the game. So, so winning is certainly a component of that. But, you know, I recognize that I've been given a gift and uh, in every sense, just maybe by being born in America, for example, that's a gift. And, and the community that I've been grown up in and the experiences that I've had, and so it's not for my own self-interest to expand upon that gift. It's to the benefit of others, right? And so how do I leverage that uh, for the most sake? And so, you know, just to further impart that, you know, here is a, it sits on behind my desk and it's a little hourglass. And literally, this is my personal purpose statement. It says, through intuitive interaction, propel leaders over their self-imposed barriers to be free to live out their unique purpose in life. And so this clock, this reminds me to do that all the time, right? And so, again, to what degree will I be able to leverage that? in any other environment uh, than here. And so, and, and again, if we look across things in our lives, where we felt the lack of peace of mind in its most simplistic form is usually where we needed somebody to come alongside us, whether that's in our career and we decided to ultimately buy a franchise and, and change our trajectory of our career, whether we're living in an apartment, which is a large client we service and our neighbor apartment was too loud or wouldn't let us to sleep to go to work the next day or our kids were fighting in the outside, somebody needed to break that up or whatever might have happened, or whether that's at our work environment that we're physically there and, and we have to be careful that not someone's not going to break in and take anything from our work environment, right? So all those cases create peace of mind so we don't have to work, so we can have a nice uninterrupted life in all those contexts, right? That we can have a, as a franchise owner, we can go to work and, and know that someone's taking care of us as a, a customer or an employee, we can go to work and or uh, live at home and, and be in someone's care. And so that's what we provide is peace of mind in all those environments that we all live in every day. And someone has to focus on that, especially as we see the narrative of the world pivoting away from that. What's a bad day for you? Well, I think uh, that's a good question. A bad day for me is when um, I think as any franchisor, you've advised anyone um, to a, a outcome that you know is a much higher likelihood of leading to success. 
and that franchisee or person does not have the discipline or the desire to lean into that. It may be uncomfortable. It may be difficult. But at the same time, is um, it's your benefit if you take my advice so you don't have to learn the downside. And then ultimately, then helping them work through the consequences of something that otherwise could have been avoided when uh, essentially uh, they would have followed that. So that's frustrating because you feel like you've wasted time and your relationship wasn't strong enough that they'd ultimately trusted you. And so that makes it a, a difficult, a more difficult day than others. Have you found that mentality or that structure has become more difficult as you've gotten bigger? Or have you enlisted the support of your team to carry that culture forward and therefore it's made it scalable? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's twofold. Yes. When you have more people, it becomes more scalable, but two, when you're growing, you get a lot more new people, right? So, so then they just, they are bringing in their lack of just organizational distrust from other organizations. So they're jaded in some cases and it takes a period of time of orienting to our culture among others. I think a large part of our network is also police and military, which also, I mean, for the sake of their livelihood, uh, distrust first, right? They, they don't believe anyone they approach is not a criminal until proven otherwise. I mean, is this a friend or foe? And so that's uh, you're walking into that environment in a really low trust circumstance where police and military, you know, general public, they, they, they learn to distrust. And so, however, also with exceptional growth, right? I mean, you know, we um, are, are, you know, growing by 20 to 30 percent and and you're adding, you know, 20 to 30 percent people every year. And that voice changes because it's bringing a voice they had previously and they're bringing this organization. So they've got to adopt the culture quickly to have an impact so that they can have impact quickly because of the growth. I want to go back to you talked about we will be the biggest in the world. Is that is that the end? Is that the light at the end of the tunnel? Because it's still at the end of every business, whether you want to exit or life exits us, there will be an exit. Like, yes, right. That's the dream of this. Is that where you want to go? Yeah. And I think, you know, if I'm building this right, the organization should supersede my life. Right. I mean, meaning that I want it to be here. Every franchisor hopefully should want the franchise network and organization to be there in their absence. So so that, you know, to your point is that's twofold. One is that where I want it to go. Yes. Is that going to require me to get there? Uh, hopefully I've set the organization up that over time, even if I don't make it there uh, in my lifetime, the organization can make it there. Um, and so there is going to be potentially an exit either way to your point. But I think ultimately that's not a matter of aspiration. That's a matter of. Uh, inherent direction, right? And I'll give an example as to why I say that. So I remember in, um, I, ironically, in 1999, I was recruited to uh, go to work for Amazon and, and the president of the organization I was working for at the time said, hey, I want you to come work for me. He left this particular Fortune 500 company to go be the chief operations officer of Amazon. And he said, I want you to come work for me. And uh, I didn't know he had left. He had left, literally resigned the day before and had contacted me the next day to come along and work for me. And, he, and I I said, Amazon, hmm, that's interesting. And I looked at it a little bit further. And it was that moment as he described it to me. And as I saw it, he, he only worked there for a short period of time, actually. But I knew they were going to be the world's largest retailer. Right. And it wasn't because I worked there. It wasn't because I was driving it. It's because I saw where culture was going. I saw where the competitors were going. I saw that ultimately, as humans, we want to save time and money. Right. And I saw that the Internet allowed for that in a retail sense. Amazon was going to take the lead in that. So it's just a matter of time over time, right? I mean, I think many people saw that in the 90s and early 2000s, and certainly in the mid 2000s, that that's inherently was going to happen. And so having been to 43 countries, all 50 states and countless contracts, I can tell you we will be the largest security company. And that's not a dream or aspiration as it may sound to other people. That's just a matter of fact. 
because I've met countless security companies. I've seen how they employ their services and who's at the top guiding them. And I see how there's huge misses. Now, one could say that, well, Walmart's huge. Yes, but if Walmart, and I'll be very specific with regard to Amazon, would not have pivoted to grocery, they may not be in existence. And that was a 90s pivot, right? Because Amazon would have otherwise taken them away. So that's my point. I see how other organizations are, are serving the space. I see how we're serving the space. And I know how culture will go, right? We will want information and confirmation that we are ultimately going to be protected ultimately. And you see that with ring doorbell and all these other things that people want to have a surety, a level of surety that they have their package delivered and they look at the ring doorbell or that whoever's walking around their house is going to be, you know, removed from their property. And ultimately, you know, the police and military can't solve all those problems. Do you get a, do you ever get a moment to sit back and pinch yourself and take two minutes and reflect back on how far you've you've come and that that this mission is even and purpose is even possible you know i think um occasionally i mean we just hit our 15 years of franchising uh a, a week ago or about two weeks ago we celebrated that as a home office and you know i think when i sat back and reflected because there's photos from the beginning and and the first there was only four of us in the office that the first christmas party 18 months later right and now we have, you know, 100 plus uh, in the home office. And, uh, you know, then you look back and I realized that apart from all of those people that had come and gone, uh, the only person that was by my side was my wife. And I looked at that and I said, you know, there's one person that's always through that process. And so I recognized her in that moment. And then the next person joined in 12 years. But as I look back, I saw the faces. And what reflected upon me is, is are their lives better as a result of this business and my involvement in their lives? So there's people that were with me for 15 years and moved on to another organization. And I know, you know, from where they started to where they're at now, not not just from an economic standpoint, because you can get paid anywhere. But is your life materially better? And I can definitely say that as I reflect from a franchisee, from customers, we still have some original customers that provide service to we provide service to that I sold when I launched this in Omaha 15 years ago, that ironically, my son is out there prospecting even today this week. And so, um, and then I see employees that I have hired uh, that were uh, on my kids' soccer teams uh, that are here working, and now they have an understanding of what, you know, business is, et cetera. So, you know, those are all things that you look back and reflect and say, it's not just did I generate a lot of revenue, but did I change lives in the process? And does this resource provide even more opportunity to change lives? And so those are the things I stop back and reflect on, because ultimately that's the driving factor as to why I'm doing this. Do you ever reflect backwards and say, I, I want to be farther than we are now? Or do you? 100% yes. I think that's the big caveat, right? I mean, I am a sprinter by every sense and and maybe a marathon sprinter, I guess. And so it creates, uh, yeah, that irony there because um, <laughs> it's been 16 years. But I think that's what happens, right, is you, you do not recalibrate for the ability of others that are not sprinters, right? So you ultimately, as an organizational leader, have to go to the pace of the peloton. You know, you have to slow down to the, the nature of where the majority are all the while pushing them forward, because if you get too far ahead, you're lost. They're lost. They're, they're either standing where you left them or they're wandering aimlessly through the woods, you know, neither which they're going to accomplish the destination. So, you know, those are the things that certainly we could have been way, way, way further had I uh, kind of calibrated appropriately. What I love about this conversation is uh, we, we've pooled franchisees and we say you're at the you're at the ledge, you're ready to jump. And you've probably taken a step backwards several times. Like you can get there and that, that comes as simple as filling out a form on a website 
or going all the way through to making the decision to sign a franchise agreement. And I said, what pushes you over the edge? And after we're now well over a thousand uh, franchisees that we've spoken with, um, there's only two things. And it's the business model. They want to make sure they got to be confident in this because they're about to invest their life savings into a business that they have relatively no control over. Um, they're going to follow a system. They have to believe in that. But above that comes culture. And I believe that if someone is listening to this, if someone can hear the, your approach to the business, it would be very difficult to argue you haven't set a culture that is that is completely dialed into changing the lives of franchise owners. And so what I would love, one, do you, do you think that culture is, the, is why you're able to continue to skyrocket? And two, for someone that happens to watch this video around the web, has made it through this, this far, what, what do you want them to know about the business? Well, 100% culture, right? I mean, your culture serves an organization. That's the differentiator, right? And I think, uh, again, you see that prominently displayed on our, our business everywhere, right? Because we're a byproduct of culture. Every, every global country is a byproduct of their culture, not their, their lines. It's not the borders that define a country, even though that starts that. That just is grouping around a culture. And we, as a business, have a border of who we let in or out. And that's defined by our culture. And so 100% yes. Number two is even if they're great people, if they don't have a great model, they're not making any money. And ultimately then the culture will be eroded by that. And I think there's one other caveat that I would add on the uh, a thousand that you've had from my perspective. So they can believe in the culture and they can believe in the, the, you know, the vision and the values and the business model. But then it's a matter of how much risk am I willing to take to apply those two things in my market? And so I think that's the unique piece for us. We eliminate the risk. And what do I mean by that risk from a time standpoint, you're still going to invest that and you may be able to get a job somewhere else that pays more, but to date, anybody that's tried to run this business has not sold it for at least what they bought it for. So they're not going to be in financial ruin and, and they're not going to lose money. Even if they tried and the culture was great and the business model was great and they just picked a bad location, for example, or, you know, they were, it was a wrong time in their lives to apply it or a, a personal disaster came along, right? I've had franchisees, you know, die of cancer. Those things happen and you don't forecast them and it ultimately happens. But at the same time as their families left and, and where they at. And so that's the other third, the third piece that I would add to that is saying, sometimes they don't jump because they're not willing to take the risk, even though there's two other things are present. And so I recognize that. And as a result of that early on, I put that as part of the business model. And so I would say, yes, absolutely buy because of culture. If you don't fit the culture, it doesn't matter the economics. None of that matters, right? If you do not fit the culture, it will purge you at some point because the economics don't matter. Number two is if you do fit the culture, confirm that the business model is in alignment with what you want to do, right? If you don't like the business model, can't see it through, can't believe in it and can't live it, don't buy for the franchise or sake as well. If you don't believe in the model, I'll say this on behalf of every other franchise or don't buy their franchise. Go find one you believe in and buy that. And then third, the risk is really a matter of this in any business. If the risk you're willing to take, you believe in yourself enough, right? And I always tell people this at the end. If you don't believe you're a good risk, I don't. If you aren't willing to bet on yourself, why should I put my money down behind you? And so I think that's the end. If they're standing at the end of that diving board and are considering jumping off, say, am I worth, am I worth the, the risk? Am I, am I capable or will I stick to it? Or will I you know, kind of leave ego to the side and do whatever the job takes to get it done? Or am I better than any job within that franchise organization? And as a result, I got to go hire people and someone else better pay for them and everything else. So I think that that end is, you know, what level of risk are you willing to take at the third component I would add? 
and is the is the opportunity worth the risk? And I, I see people back away when they don't um, when that doesn't affirm them, even though culture and business model may make sense. Love that. I mean, I will say, Reed, I've known you for a long time on periphery, and then obviously a few times in person. Uh, never have been able to talk to you in in this manner. Uh, and I I believe that brands don't sell brands; people do. And if someone can see this and it's coming down to a decision of what widget makes most sense for their lives, this ends up being a, a big difference maker in the end because they're able to see your vision as the founder uh, and how bought in and, and protective you are of, of their entrepreneurial journey. And I think that's that's phenomenal. So I'm, I'm grateful that we've been able to have this conversation uh, and I look forward to seeing where your story goes. Well, thank you, Nick, for the time. And I appreciate you reaching out and uh, best of luck in your future endeavors. Thanks, Reed. This is another Meet the Zor. Take care, everybody.